<laughs> I'm just kidding. What's up, everybody? My name is Eric Garcia, and you're tuned in to another episode of Is This Seat Taken? And I hope everybody's having a wonderful day or night, wherever you may be. And I gotta say, my morning started off pretty good. Made some coffee that I don't drink. You know, ended up cooking an omelet, added some cheese, some tomatoes, some jalapenos, you know, the works. And then ended up cutting up some watermelon, had my own little fruit cup there, and I was good to go. My day was set. Trying to wash myself a little bit more just because I started getting on the little heavier side and it got to a point where it was just so bad. I was just becoming a holy dude with my boxers, you know, and not a good feeling. It's especially a worse feeling when you got to start busting out the baby powder. That's right, the baby powder, the Lord and Savior that helps me with all my pain when it's necessary. Thankfully, though, I've dropped around 20 pounds, which is fantastic, and I am no longer a holy dude and no longer in the need of the baby powder. (laughs) So I had a dream about David Dobrik. Now, if you're unfamiliar with David Dobrik, he's a YouTuber, does vlogs, and records his day-to-day events. And on occasion, he'll give his friends cars, brand new cars, Teslas, Lamborghinis, you name it, he buys it, he gives it away. And I've seen him do videos where he gives away these vehicles to just random strangers. But not only that, he also gives back to the community, he gives back money. Sometimes you'll see him give money to college students, or you'll see him give money to families that are in need. I know during the whole coronavirus, he was giving out money to families that need it businesses that needed it and it's very touching so if anything i think david dobrik with the platform he has does a lot of good and does a lot more than a lot of these celebrities that have this type of platform so shout out to david dobrik for being an awesome dude and shout out to the vlog squad the people that work with him because they are so funny and definitely when i'm having a sad day it's where i tune into to give me a good laugh So I had a dream though. I was living with the vlog squad. You know, I was there with David and Corinne and Todd and Scott and Jason Nash. And we were all just there just chilling. And then David came up and was like, hey guys, so we have a event today. And everybody's like, oh, okay, cool. You know, what's up? What's the event? So the event was we were going to go to a high school. They were going to be performing a play. Now, I don't know what kind of play it was. All I know is that these students were dressed up as vegetables. You could see peas and carrots and broccoli, just people in costumes. And it was just ridiculous. These students were supposed to perform a play. And then there was going to be a scene where everything would just go black out, right? I guess like a transition. But when that would happen, the lights would shine up and then the vlog squad would be there. So David wanted two people to volunteer themselves to come up with an idea of how he could give away $500 to everybody within that auditorium that was watching the play. So then they end up choosing me and I want to say Jason Nash to pick the idea of, you know, what the the concept would be so these people could win money. So Jason's like, you know what? I have a great idea, Eric. Let's just say this and do this. And I was I was all on board. I was like, fuck it. Yeah, let's do this. Sounds great. So we ended up going to the high school. The play went on. And then during that transition, the whole vlog squad came on stage. The lights were all out. But next thing you know, the lights are all on and the vlog squad shows up and everybody just goes freaking nuts. All these high schoolers. Oh my God, it's David Dobrik and the vlog squad. Just losing it, you know. And once again, like I said, everybody's there. Aaron, Carly, Jason Nash, Todd, Jeff, everybody. And I probably left some people out, but just know if you're familiar with the David Dobrik crew, they were there. And so David goes on stage and he grabs the mic and he's just like, hey, how's it going, everybody? I hope you all are doing well. The play is actually very funny. And he was just like, how would y'all like to win some money today? And so everybody just loses it again. Oh my God, free money. Oh my God. 
You know, everybody's just cheering for it. And so then he's like, well, my good friend Jason Nash and Eric are going to come up on stage and tell you how you could win some money. So here we come, me and Jason Nash, right? We're walking on stage and he's like, all right, Eric, just follow my lead. Which my lead basically wasn't doing nothing. Jason was doing all the talking. I was just there smiling and waving. And so Jason goes, okay, everybody. So this is going to be kind of like charades or hangman. Basically, there's a phrase that I have written on this board. And if you can guess it, then each and every one of y'all will win $500. And so he's like, okay, these are the amount of letters. These are the amount of tries. We'll go for it from here. Now, once again, this is my dream. So some of it might not make sense. But so he starts calling on people and they start, you know, guessing the phrase. Long story short, the phrase ends up being know your worth. Somebody gets it. Everybody wins money. Everybody's ecstatic. And then David just comes back and grabs the mic and he's just laughing and all smiling, just like how you know David is. And he's like, hey guys, uh, I let Jason and, and Eric lead this activity. And, you know, this whole idea and I could see that know your worth is you know this big message and I just want to say that I think it's a it's a true statement know your worth know that you know sometimes we go through dark times sometimes we don't feel that we're as special as we should be or we compare ourselves to things that are unnecessary but you are worth it you're beautiful you are smart you are loving and you are definitely an awesome individual and make sure to tell yourself that every day and if you forget to just remind yourself when it gets dark and it just became this whole uproar right and everybody loved the message and it was a good good time it was fun and after that we went back to to the house and we were just chilling and I don't know the scene just changed right everybody ended up just going in their own little way in the house and then I'm like you know fuck it I'm gonna go <laughs> let me go see what's what David's doing so I got up and I start looking but the house is just huge like I, it, it's nothing like it's in the, his YouTube episodes right and so I'm walking around I go in a room and I see David he's just chilling on a bed like sitting on the edge and there's a whole bunch of people in there right and then I turn to my right and I see James Charles was there i'm like what the fuck and so james charles lives with david dobrik in the house and if you're unfamiliar with with james charles james charles is a makeup artist so it just it was just super hilarious and then i woke up and that's my david dobrik story hopefully i didn't put you to sleep with that but his vlogs are super hilarious and i would highly recommend watching them and like i said he does a lot so shout out to david dobrik and the the vlog squad but that was my dream of the day and would david dobrik give a speech like that probably not but i do know he's a good dude and he gives a lot so happy for it and who knows maybe james charles will randomly meet me one day and decide to give me a huge makeover because god knows i need it <laughs> so, but besides my whole David Dobrik, you know, dream and holes in my boxers and stuff, let's get to the real stuff, right? Hopefully the real reason why you're here listening. And so I typically like to go on Reddit. Not typically. I'm on Reddit all the damn time. And Reddit is really cool just because they have so many things that you could discover, you know. It can be good and bad, though, because Reddit can be a dark place sometimes. However, today, I want to talk about some unresolved mysteries. Ooh. And I, I'm basically going to be going through some posts and some stories that are actual true life events that have happened and just reading them to you and maybe discussing them a little bit more because some of these unresolved mysteries are really terrifying and very disturbing. And so I just want to jump through that and see how it goes and, you know, pull up a discussion about it. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin, I just want to make sure that I'm giving credit to the people who actually create these posts on Reddit because once again, I'm not the one typing all this information now i'm just reading it from a post that was created by this user so the user is bridge oral o-r-l bridge oral thank you so much so let's get this party started in 1993 
a mother and daughter return home to find their husband and father, David Glenn Lewis, missing. Hours later, a deceased hit-and-run victim was found thousands of miles away. It would take 11 years before the victim would be identified as David Glenn Lewis. Wife and 9-year-old daughter return home from a weekend shopping trip to Dallas on January 31st, 1993 and found David missing with freshly made sandwiches in the fridge. They had no idea that across the country David was hours away from being found as an unidentified John Doe. The man had been seen walking down a Washington highway before being killed in a hit and run. Though the hit and run victim's identity is now known and his cause of death well established, questions remain surrounding why David Glenn Lewis headed to Washington that weekend and several other pieces regarding David's last moments continue to be up in the air. David Glenn Lewis was born in Borger, Texas in 1953, the second of two children to Herschel and Esther Lewis. David graduated from high school in 1972 and from there went to Texas Tech University where he was an honor student and graduated with a degree in political science. David continued on to Texas Tech University Law School gaining a doctorate in jurisprudence in 1979. David practiced as an attorney in Amarillo, Texas and was a member of the American Bar Association. He married his wife Karen in 1981 and their only child, a daughter, was born a couple of years later. David was a member of the local church, a Sunday school teacher, a member of the director's board for Dumas Community Education Advisory Council, and a district chairman involved in the Boy Scouts of America. David was said to be a dedicated family man and charity volunteer who was close to his parents and brother. Now, Super Bowl weekend of 1993, David's wife and daughter headed from their home in Amarillo to Dallas around 400 miles away for a weekend of shopping. They departed Amarillo on the 28th of January, leaving David at home for the next couple of days. It is known that David was last seen alive on the 30th of January, but where and by whom has not been revealed. On the 31st of January, the day of the Super Bowl match, David's wife and daughter returned home from Dallas, expecting to find David waiting for them. They were surprised when the man was nowhere to be found. The tape recorder had been left recording the match. Though it had continued to run after the match had finished, Two freshly made sandwiches were found in the fridge. David's wedding ring and watch had been placed on the kitchen counter. There was no signs of struggle or anything disturbed in the house that would point towards burglary or foul play. It appeared as though David had simply slipped out for a while. Due to the match and the tape recording, David's wife believed David may have gone to a friend's house to watch and would return soon. However, a day later, the 1st of February, there is still no sign of David. David's wife goes to Amarillo Police Department to report her husband missing. Now while David's wife was reporting him missing in Amarillo at 10.30 p.m., some 1,600 miles away in Yakima County, Washington, several people spotted an individual on Route 24 near Moxie, several miles from the Yakima Airport. The exact location is unclear. One source claims the individual was lying down by the road while another claims he was walking along the center of the road. But either way, he was somehow along the road in a precautious manner. Motorists turned around to stop other drivers to warn them of the individual. But when they turned back, they found that the individual was deceased. Police arrived to find the body belonged to a middle-aged man. He had been dressed in a military-style clothing and work boots. An examination found no traces of alcohol or drugs in his system from those that were tested for at least. Investigators believed him to have been the victim of an accidental hit and run. A Chevrolet Camaro was seen leaving the scene around the time of his death. The man had not been carrying any identification when he was killed and his identity was unknown. So the day after John Doe's body was found, the 2nd of February, 
The investigation into David Glenn Lewis's disappearance in Amarillo heats up when investigators find David's car. The Red Ford Explorer had been found outside the Potter County Courts building downtown. Under a mat on his floor, police found David's house and car keys. His checkbook, credit cards, and driving license were inside the car in the usual place David kept them. With the recovery of these items, along with David's wedding ring and watch which were found in his home, none of his personal effects were missing. The discovery of David's car and these items have given police no real answer. The investigation does, however, lead the police to an interesting piece of information. Sometime before his death, David had informed his wife that he believed he had been in danger. He wouldn't, however, tell his wife any information about the threats he believed to be on his life or what the cause of the danger was. David's family believed his disappearance may have been linked to his work as an attorney. A disgruntled client or individual who had held David accountable for something that happened as the result of a case and wanted to exact revenge on him. David was due in Dallas a week after his disappearance for a deposition in a conflict of interest case between his former law firm and a wealthy client. David had told his father that he had no intention of covering up any wrongdoings by his former firm and was going to tell the truth whoever it hurt. These possible leads, however, went nowhere and it wasn't until later that the investigators made their most significant discovery two plane tickets purchased in David's name around the time of his disappearance. The first ticket, purchased on the 31st, was a ticket from Dallas to Amarillo. This is the same journeys David's wife and daughter made on the same day, when they returned home to find him missing. How the two got home from Dallas themselves is unclear. The second ticket, purchased a day later on the 1st of February, was a ticket from Los Angeles International Airport to Dallas. This is the day John Doe's body was found in Washington. The intention behind the plane ticket is unknown, and it has not been revealed whether they were used. Did David intend to use them? If so, how did he get from his home in Amarillo to Dallas, a 5 hour car journey away? Did he intend to return home from Washington to Texas before he was killed, using Los Angeles' airport as a stopover? And if that's the case, why did he go to Washington in the first place? With no more leads, materializing the criminal investigation into David's disappearance was closed after 11 months. In 2002, police told local press that the plane tickets purchased in David's name around the time of his disappearance led to them believing that David left home of his own accord and they did not suspect foul play in his case, and no other leads were forthcoming. However, in 2003, 10 years after John Doe's body was found in Yakima County, a Washington Patrol detective named Pat Ditter read a newspaper series entitled Without a Trace about a missing persons case. Ditter, a stickler for detail and a dedicated detective, read in the series about the flaws in the missing persons investigations, and particularly flaws in the NCIC's National Crime Information Center computer system at the time. Inspired by the thought that the possible identities for unidentified victims may have fallen through the cracks of the computer databases. Ditter took to Google and inputted characteristics related to about a dozen cases that matched their description. Within a week, police finally had a breakthrough, a list of potential victims who roughly matched the description of Yakima County John Doe. One in particular, a Doe network entry for David Glenn Lewis, complete with the picture of a missing man, caught Ditter's eye. The picture of David was strikingly similar to one Ditter had one of the John Doe's, though he was put off by the lack of glasses on the John Doe's body. After looking into evidence found along Alongside John Doe's body, Ditter discovered that a pair of glasses had in fact been found. Ditter went to access the personal effects found with John Doe's body and was able to find glasses wrapped in the military style clothing he had been wearing when he was killed. 
Now, believing the connection between John Doe and David Glenn Lewis may be more than a coincidence. Ditter got into contact with the Amarillo police. He later sent them items that could have been used for DNA analysis. One of the boots the victim had been wearing and a tissue sample preserved since 1993, David's mother Esther provided her own DNA sample to test against the unidentified man. In October 2004, 11 years after he went missing, David Glenn Lewis was identified as the deceased man found on Route 24, 1600 miles away from home. It is unknown why David would have headed to Washington and nobody has been able to offer any insight into a connection he may have had to the area. Though John Doe has his name back, many questions still circle surrounding what exactly happened to David Glenn Lewis that weekend and how he ended up in Washington. Though police had stated before his body was identified that they believe David went missing of his own accord. David's assertion to his wife that he had been in danger his demeanor as a loving family man, and the nature of his job as an attorney have David's family convinced that he was the victim of a kidnapping or foul play. Ditter believes David's death on the road in Yakima County to been an accident rather than suicide. Nobody's able to provide any answers as to who would lead David to Washington, a state of which he had no ties, or the nature and motivations behind the plane tickets purchased in David's name to remain a mystery. But with that being said, there is so many questions unanswered. Why did David leave his home in Texas and travel 1,600 miles to Washington? He had no known ties to the state. Was he running from a perceived threat to his life? Was he meeting someone? Did he simply want to leave his family? Did he ever intend to return? How did David get to Washington in the first place? Were the plane tickets bought in his name connected to his plans? If so, what is the connection to LA? Had he planned to fly home from Washington via there? What is the significance of David's attire of military-style clothing and work boots when he was found dead? What was David referring to when he told his wife that his life had been in danger? Was it connected to his work? Why was David on the road before he was killed? Did he have a breakdown or mental health issues that led to his initial decision to leave home? Was it a suicide attempt? Or was David's hit and run truly an accident or linked to the danger he believed himself to be in? Who killed David Glenn Lewis? Now at this point, I'd like to mention another user named GrannyPanny75 uh, found an article uh, stating some of the activities that David was doing on that Thursday. It says David left Buckner, Lara, and Swindle Law Firm about noon on January 28th, which is that Thursday, stating to co-workers he was ill and going home. He bought gas by credit card and taught a government class at Amarillo College until 10pm. Friday, a church friend from Dumas says she saw him hurrying through the Southwest Airlines terminal at Amarillo's airport. He had no luggage. A police officer noticed a red Ford Explorer at 10.30 p.m. outside the Potter County Courts building. Saturday, someone deposited $5,000 in the Lewis Bank account. A neighbor saw his red Explorer parked at home and the one parked downtown was gone. Sunday, a sheriff's deputy noticed a man who looked like Lewis standing across the street from the court's building. He was photographing a red explorer again parked out front. Someone taped the Super Bowl on the Lewis VCR. Miss Lewis and her daughter returned home and noticed laundry in the dryer and two fresh made turkey sandwiches in the fridge. She assumed he was working late. A Dallas cab driver drove a man matching Lewis's description from a hotel to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport on February 1st. The man was nervous and fumbled to pay him from a wad of $100 bills. Police soon find the explorer at the courts building with his keys under the floor mat and the checkbook, driver license, and two gas credit cards. The article also stated that his wife says the only clothing missing from the house was a pair of green sweatpants. It outlines two cases he was involved in where someone may have wished him harm. The first was a lawsuit by a murder convict, Bobby Templin, against his former father-in-law that was eventually withdrawn. 
Lewis represented the father-in-law who felt that Bobby lacked the money and influence to arrange a murder from prison. The other case was the one he was to be deposed in that was a $3 million lawsuit against Lewis, plus several other lawyers and an engine promoter that Lewis represented. But his attorney could see no motive because no one benefits from Lewis's disappearance as it was covered by insurance. But that's the crazy thing about these stories, just because we'll never honestly know the truth about what happened. We won't ever know what happened to David or what was going through his head during his final moments. Now, I think the biggest question for me is, what was David doing on the road before he was killed? It's crazy to think that he was just roaming the road. Now, some would say maybe he had a mental breakdown and just decided to go for a walk, who knows? But even then, I would suspect that he didn't kill himself. I really do think that the whole idea of him being paranoid got to him and the possibility that one of his clients was setting out a hit on him. I think with any type of pressure with that, it could drive anybody nuts. Now, the other thing is the plane tickets. How does that make sense? Why was he dressed in military clothing? Was David's hit and run an accident or was it on purpose? Honestly, I don't think it was an accident. The fact is that if he was telling his wife that he felt like he was in danger i truly believe it when you are put in these situations where you're under stress or you feel like your life is in danger especially with the job that he does then yeah i'm sure it can get to certain people and it probably broke him at certain points unless there was just a point where he felt like he was just trying to escape and leave his family into safety that could probably explain why he left some of his belongings maybe he rented a car tried to get out or this whole assumption that you know what maybe they're coming for me but they don't know my family so let me get out of here while i can that you just go from plan A to plan B to plan C and you just don't know what the end result's gonna be. And even though they found David's body, it's truly tragic that we'll never really know what truly happened to him and what inspired events led to his fatality. I guess in this case, it is an unresolved mystery. So the next mystery that we're jumping into, the post was created by The Bones of Autumn. Now, after being hired to dance at a private party, 24-year-old Muncie, Indiana resident Angie Barlow sent one final text to her roommate. Just in case I go missing, lol. The text turned out to be horribly prolific. On October 26, 2016, a woman texted professional dancer Angie Barlow and asked her to perform at a private party, implying it would be a surprise for her boyfriend. The sender did not provide a name, just an apartment address and a time to show up. Angie, who performed in local Indianapolis clubs and occasionally did other events on the side, took the gig. The texter requested that Angie dress in black or red undergarments. Angie agreed. At about 11.45 p.m. that night, Angie sent a Snapchat message to her roommate, Mona Jackson. It showed Angie smiling in what appeared to be an apartment bathroom and stated, Doing a private party at this address just in case I go missing, lol. That message turned out to be horribly prolific. Angie Barlow was never heard from again. When Angie did come home the next day, Mona Jackson contacted Christina Kramer, Angie's mother. Christina and her husband rushed from Muncie to Indianapolis to report Angie missing. Police studied surveillance footage of the private party's address. The footage depicts Angie's blue Pontiac G6 leaving the apartment complex at 3.29 a.m. Another car directly follows. Neither driver is visible on the tape, but the license plate on the second car is registered to a woman named Raven Miller. Indianapolis Metro Police Department Detective Jose Torres discovers that the party was hosted by Raven Miller and her romantic partner, a man named Baron McCullough. Angie knew the couple from her club dancing, and according to Torres, she didn't like them. In fact, Torres said Angie would not have taken the job had she known Miller and McCullough were behind it. He therefore believes that she was tricked to come to this location. Miller and McCullough admitted to the police that Angie was at their apartment but that she left at 3 a.m. while she stayed behind. 
Miller and McCohu admitted to police that Angie was at their apartment, but that she had left at 3 a.m. while they stayed behind. No other evidence connects the pair to Angie's disappearance. 12 days later, Angie's car turned up. It was dumped in a distressed condition about 8 miles away from the party's address. Still, the trash vehicle supplied no new leads. In May 2017, police arrested Monty resident Michelle Brown for stealing $8,000 from the bank account of Angie's grandmother. Detectives hoped the fraud bust would lead to information about Angie, but so far it has not. Then in June 2017, an anonymous tip led police to the human remains buried in an Indianapolis backyard. The badly decomposed body belonged to Angie. Christina Kramer identified her daughter's remains by looking at tattoo photos. Cops questioned the homeowner where the grave was located but cut him loose. He had only moved into the residence recently before which it had been unoccupied. Between the secretive couple who hired Angie to dance in the fraud case against Angie's grandmother, detectives have been examining the possibility of a larger conspiracy at work. Nonetheless, no hard connections have yet emerged to tie the crimes together, nor to implicate any previous persons of interest. Regardless, Detective Torres said he is continuing to take a harder look at the gathering thrown by Raven Miller and Baron McCoo. He has stated, I believe that there are other people in the apartment when this incident occurred no exactly what happened to Angela that evening and my goal here is not just an arrest my goal is a conviction these are one of those cases where you just get so upset knowing that the family isn't going to ever get any closure that no one's ever really going to be pulled back into justice for what they did now in my honest opinion I think the couple of Raven and Baron who threw the party and got Angie to come over the one that Angie had a bad relationship with at the clubs was the one who killed her most definitely Cops say that during the surveillance footage, they see her car leave the apartment complex at 3.29 a.m. with the vehicle following her. The surveillance footage may not have been able to identify the drivers, but they were able to pull up on the license plate the identity of Raven, who the car belonged to. So you're going to tell me that this car followed her and then just went her own ways at 3.29 in the morning, especially when they had beef and then they act like nothing has happened. Now, I also want to add a comment made by Murph Randier on Reddit. He says that Raven and the boyfriend's stories didn't match up, they deleted all social media accounts and have fled the state. So when you hear that, come on, doesn't that just scream guilty? It's sad to know that we live in a world where we have to fear for our lives in this manner, to where you just don't know who you're going to come across. So everyone, if you're tuning in, just remember to be safe any time of the day that you're going out and be aware of your surroundings. Now let's look into our final unresolved mystery. This user also created this post, which is the Bones of Autumn. On April 20th, 1977, Harriet Carr found her husband, Ted, dead on the floor of their garage. He had died of carbon monoxide poisoning, as did the three people Harriet discovered in the trunk of Ted's car. How many unknown victims have fallen prey to Ted's car? On April 20th, 1977, around 4.30 a.m., Harriet Carr, who lived at 940 North Olney Street in Indianapolis, Indiana, noticed her garage door was slightly ajar and went to investigate. She entered the garage to find her husband, 62-year-old Melvin Ted Carr, dead of carbon monoxide poisoning. Harriet rushed inside to turn off the still-running car, only to discover her husband wasn't the only one in the garage. In the open trunk of Ted's car, Harriet saw three bodies, a woman, a teenage girl, and a very young boy. As Harriet ran screaming from the garage, neighbors called the police. The three bodies found in Ted's trunk were identified as 24-year-old Karen Nils, her two-year-old son Robert, and a 17-year-old girl named Sandra Harris. All three were killed by carbon monoxide poisoning, and it was determined that both Karen and Sandra had been sexually assaulted. Police located a load 25 caliber revolver in Ted's pocket and noted Ted was carrying a handkerchief. 
A vacuum cleaner hose was found leading from the car's tailpipe towards the trunk of the car. The evidence painted a picture of what had happened. Ted had abducted the three victims, sexually assaulted the two women, then ordered them into the trunk at gunpoint. He then proceeded to drive his car into the garage, inserted one end of the hose into the tailpipe and the other into the trunk. He closed and locked the trunk and left his victims to die. When Ted went to confirm his victims were dead, he used the handkerchief to cover his face and open the trunk. But Ted's makeshift mask proved to be no match for the large amount of toxic gas that had filled the trunk and garage and in bizarre twist of fate he succumbed to the fumes himself so who was ted carr melvin ted carr was no stranger to the police in october of 1947 ted was arrested after he kidnapped two hitchhikers the hitchhikers were a husband and wife who told police that the twisted tale of what ted had done to them the woman told police after picking up the pair, Ted drove them to a secluded location where he ordered them at gunpoint from the vehicle. He then proceeded to handcuff the male hitchhiker to a trailer hitch and rape the female hitchhiker before letting them go. The charges against him for the crime would later be dropped. In early 1971, Ted was convicted of a swindling an elderly blind woman out of her life savings. After giving Ted her power of attorney, he left the handicapped 81-year-old widow with only $30 in her savings account. Shortly after, he was suspected of forcing a young girl to commit an abnormal sex act under the threat of being raped. He was never charged for this crime. Later the same year, Ted received five years in jail after he took a 14-year-old girl to Mexico for moral purposes. While in prison for the crime, correctional officers discovered several hand-drawn maps of the interior of both the elderly woman and the 14-year-old girl's homes. The maps also included Ted's plan to kill them. Ted was released after serving three of his five-year sentence. Ted was also a suspect in another case that still hasn't been solved. In February of 1967, it was discovered that Lois Williams, a 35-year-old divorcee, and her 17-year-old daughter Karen had gone missing. Lois' father had last heard from his daughter and granddaughter in January. He called police to perform a welfare check. Police noticed that Lois' house was spotless and nothing appeared to have been taken, not even Lois or Karen's winter coat. A missing endangered persons report was issued. Lois knew Ted's car well. Ted owned and managed a service station where Lois would frequently take her car for repairs. It was also rumored that both Lois and her daughter Karen had a sexual relationship with Ted. On the evening Lois was last seen, a neighbor and co-worker of Ted's named Calvin Campbell witnessed Lois and Karen leave the gas station in Ted's car. Hours later, he returned alone and angry, telling the co-worker he was mad at Lois who he claimed had went into the bar and refused to come out. Ted ordered Calvin to close the shop and he did so. The following morning, as Calvin was readying for work, Ted's dad came across the street yelling that Ted had been beaten up and robbed. Calvin found Ted on the ground, seemingly dazed, incoherent, and bloody. Ted told Calvin a story of how someone mugged him outside the service station but insisted Calvin not call the police. Calvin went inside to check if anything had been stolen from the business. Nothing was missing but Ted's car. The same one he was driving the night before was on a lift. It had been cleaned with a pressure washer inside and out with particular focus on the trunk. Calvin quit his job at the service station after that. Calvin's wife, Maureen, believed she was almost a victim of Ted's as well. She said one night Ted informed her he was going to go to the hospital because he was having trouble breathing. Later that night, and while Calvin was working his new night job as a janitor, Ted called her from the hospital. He requested that she check to see if he had left the garage door open, claiming he was worried that he may have left it open and feared for the safety of his tools inside. Maureen and Calvin had been informed of Ted's past and the suspicions that surrounded him by the police so she decided not to go. It was later discovered that Ted had been at the hospital that evening, but a nurse discovered that he had vanished from his room, never bothering to check out hours before the phone call to Marine was made. Another neighbor reported seeing his car parked a block away that evening. 
Maureen thinks Ted used the landline he had in his garage to call her and believes it was Ted's failed attempt at kidnapping her. Early into the disappearance of Lois and Karen, police searched Ted's garage and found personal papers belonging to Lois in a suitcase, but no other evidence was discovered and police didn't believe they had enough to charge him with the crime. However, after the bodies were discovered in Ted's garage, the investigation to Lois and Karen's disappearance was resumed. After a bit of a battle with Ted's widow Harriet, police began excavating his yard and his basement and garage floor where fresh patches of cement were found. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to locate Lois or Karen's remains. Bones discovered in the backyard turned out to be animal bones and the investigation stopped. Some investigators believe they were not allowed an adequate amount of time to fully search the property. Ted was well known as an excellent craftsman and had completely remodeled his basement shortly after Lois and Karen had disappeared. Some investigators believe the pair's remains are still inside the house somewhere, perhaps in a wall. Lois' father had believed for quite some time that Ted was responsible for the disappearance. He wrote to Ted while Ted was incarcerated. In the letter he said, I never did trust you. Those poor girls never did harm to a soul on earth. The suffering for them has passed. They are in God's heaven. But what about you, Ted Carr? Have you thought about your own death and what lies beyond? I can't imagine what your punishment will be, can you? Unfortunately, he passed away without ever getting any real closure, as Lois and Karen's remains have never been found. The house at 940 North Olney still stands today. And that was a crazy story on its own, but how can you tell when you're dealing with a psychopath, right? I feel really bad for the wife just because who knows if she even had an idea that he was showing these type of tendencies, or maybe she had a hunch. But the fact of the matter is, this dude probably did it to other women, which is so sad to hear. I mean, Lois and Karen were the only victims ever really acknowledged by the police. And so when you look into those aspects, it's just like, what drives a person to, to do those type of things? What makes you wanna go down a dark and evil path? And obviously I'm no professional, but I'm sure there's a lot of reasons out there on what creates these horrific tendencies, right? I know psychopaths are typically unable to form emotional attachments. They tend to be more aggressive and predatory, and they also like to view others as objects for their amusement. And they tend to lack empathy and even come off as charming at times. And that's the scary part, especially when they're just so good at it. I mean, we can look into history, right? And look at past psychopaths. Kind of like Ed Jean, also known as the Butcher of Plainfield. He would literally go around collecting women's bodies through grave robbing. He went around murdering people from 1945 to 1957. And he would use these women's remains to help decorate his farm. So he would just kind of use it just to, to spaz it up, you know, to make it a little bit more jazzy. Or maybe we could look into the famous Charles Manson, who was a cult leader and formed a group of admirers by the name of the Manson family. His followers would eventually go on to commit a series of nine murders in July and August of 1969, and Manson was just so good at manipulation. Or maybe we could look into the horrifying Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK killer, which also stood for Bind, Torture, and Kill. Now between 1974 and 1991, Rader killed 10 people in Wichita, Kansas. Rader would also send taunting letters to the police and newspapers describing the details of his crimes. And just to throw in one more name, I mean, we could even talk about Jack the Ripper. I mean, this dude would kill prostitutes in the late 1800s and remove their fucking sex organs. He would leave his victims on full display on the street for police and citizens to discover. And it just sucks that Lois and Karen's body was never found and that their dad could never fully make peace with it. Just as I'm sure a lot of families out there who are grieving and going through traumatic experiences such as this are dealing with it. And it's really sad to hear that things like this actually happen in the world. 
if you are interested in learning more about these serial killers and what actually goes through their mind, I would highly recommend watching the show called Mindhunter. There are two seasons on Netflix and it's a fantastic show. The show does an excellent job of storytelling and giving some good facts while also presenting some very notorious serial killers in our history with also following up on some great facts about them. But that's all of our unresolved mysteries for this episode at least. I hope you enjoyed them. And well, we finally made it towards the end of the episode. I'm sure y'all are tired of hearing me go on but i just want to say thank you so much for tuning in i had a great time and i hope you did too stay safe be well remember that you're awesome and i hope you have a wonderful day or night wherever you're at i'm eric garcia and this is is this seat taken i'll catch y'all later laters